I mean to be king, my lady, and not of a broken kingdom. I cannot say it plainer than that. Three hundred years ago, a Stark king knelt to Aegon the dragon when he saw he could not hope to prevail. That was wisdom. Your son must be wise as well. Welcome to the White Book Podcast, the original A Game of Thrones LCG podcast. Originally founded in 2010 as Two Champs and a Chump, we decided to rebrand when the game relaunched in the second edition. A huge thank you goes out to Fantasy Flight Games and George R. R. Martin for this game and world we love, and of course to my co-hosts and you, the listeners. Please, if you enjoy the show, leave us a review on iTunes or your platform of choice, comment on our Facebook threads, or even better, support us on Patreon. We love turning uh, that kind of support back into the community. This is Season 10 of the White Book Podcast. I was, I was trying to find a good war quote, since this is uh, the moment of our retrospective that takes us to the first uh, chapter pack dealing with Clash of Kings, and I realized the word war is mentioned a lot in that novel, mm-hmm. and not uh, in particularly memorable ways. Huh. <laughs> Go figure. Well, there's a lot of words. Primarily, uh, you know, a lot of them just end up being wind. and <laughs> Indeed they do. You know, it's, yeah, that's, I got nowhere to go from there. But I'm glad, yeah. I, I'm glad I went there. <laughs> well, words are wind much like they are for us every week on the White Book. I'm Will. And I'm Roy. Uh, and as advertised, we are continuing our retrospective. We have now made our way all the way to the second cycle of second edition. Uh, let's see. What was the title of the cycle itself? The War of Five Kings. Five Kings, right? Because it's supposed to be based on the second book, right? Yeah, sure enough. Yeah. Uh, well, so- Roy... You've been giving us the uh, the breakdowns of Nate's articles, so how about you continue that trend? Right, so Nate uh, kind of identifies three themes, I guess you could say. Well, explicitly identifies two, but there's sort of four, right? We talked about well before this that kind of come, but directly from the article, there are two, which is Kings Matter. Uh there's a whole cycle of kings and one queen in Martell um, and uh, summer and winter plot traits and things playing off the summer and winter plot traits. Then uh, there's sort of two softer themes, which is um, this cycle sees the first attempt to print um, economy cards into the game since the core set, I believe. Excuse me. Most of the factions get some attempt at an economy card. 
Um, um, yeah. And then uh, there is the Loyals Matter, uh, Loyalty Matters theme, uh, which I'm sure we'll talk about some of the cards that really don't work <laughs> ab- about <laughs> this, but where it matters whether or not certain the characters you control are loyal or characters your opponent doesn't control are non-loyal. Uh, right. Stark like has a loyalty theme where it rewards you for playing loyal cards. Um, the new Rob, well, it's not even new Rob, but big Rob, I guess you could say. Um, King Rob in this is is a great example of that. Also, um, Bear Island, uh, Donella Hornwood, and then Barra has the opposite. Barra has a theme of it matters if your opponent's characters are non-loyal. So, or, or not like the, the King Stannis, uh, old King Stannis in this one, um, the Davos in this cycle. These are all cards that cue off the fact that your opponent has non-loyal characters. Do, do we want to take a, a moment to talk about that or are you still going on the article? No, I think that those are the sort of the four themes of where to start. Because the article here doesn't really, it's the least in depth of the ones we've covered so far. Um, so it kind of just says, hey, there's kings in w- summer and winter. Enjoy. Yeah. Uh, so I think we can start kind of, I guess, with any of the four big picture themes, Will. Yeah. Well, just one quick note on the article. Like we were uh, discussing before recording, this is the first of these articles that is specifically um, previewing this first pack of this cycle. So there's really only like a, an introduction about the cycle as a whole. And then it delves into discussing some specific spoiler cards from this pack. So that that's, I think that abbreviated nature kind of hampers some of that, that delving into the designer's mind. Yeah. There's a lot less of that in here than there has been previously. Yeah. That's definitely the case. Yeah. Much, much more a marketing release now uh, at this point. So that, that trend I believe continues uh, from here on out. Yeah. I think maybe the boxes are a little bit more in depth. Those articles, if I remember right, but we'll see. I mean, we will see. Yeah, we'll get there. Um, Well, as far as these bigger themes go, I want to start with what's maybe the second biggest sort of because it in my mind anyway because it also connects to uh one of those softer themes because you were just talking about the the loyal and non-loyal stuff and essentially what all of the kings we get all tie into that one way or another um and you're you're talking about things like this first version of king stannis we get and i actually i kind of like how that's handled at least from a Nedley perspective um, and how some of that breakdown is between which factions are rewarded for their own people being loyal versus which ones are punishing other people for being disloyal, unloyal, non-loyal. However, I should phrase that for this game. And I, and I think Stannis and maybe like Joffrey are kind of like two really solid examples of that in a Nedley sense, right? Like Stannis doesn't care about whether you love him or not. He doesn't care about you really. It's, are you loyal to the throne? Are you following the law? Are you following your oaths? Whatever. That's all he cares about. So that's very Nedley that he only cares about 
are the opponent's people non-loyal? Uh, and conversely, you've got uh, Joffrey, who only cares if you're loyal to him, right? He's not not only from the, the Lannister uh, family perspective, right, where everyone stays loyal to the family and that's all that matters and stuff. But he also has that extremely narcissistic uh, personality where he is the only thing that matters. So it's all this inward facing loyalty. So like mm. from a Nedley sense, I think the broad strokes of that are like well done actually yeah i think on a on a thematic level i think all of the kings are successes um i think they're all pretty very well designed cards um excuse me um from from a nedley perspective from a thematic perspective and i think the loyalty matters theme works particularly when I think like when it's about like whether or not you marshal loyal characters, um, Joffrey, as you mentioned, is a good example of this. Um, even moving outside the Kings, like Danella Hornwood also kind of does that. But I think it's probably it's the problem is loyalty and non-loyal isn't like consistent enough across the card pool at any point for this theme to really work in a way that is really interesting or really comes as a deck building cost or like interesting deck building question, you know, like whether or not like worrying about your opponent's Stannis is never really something that you really, really consider or, you know, you know what I mean? Where, um, you know, the opportunity cost of losing to your opponent's Stannis um, because you know the your important non-loyal character can't stand is never really enough for you to not play a good non-loyal character, right? Yeah. Um, the, because the non-loyal characters worth playing are just always worth it, right? And then, like, if you look at Balon, um, you know, um, it just ends up being that the best Greyjoy characters are almost all overwhelmingly loyal. Because you want those characters to be loyal because that gives the faction identity. So you're basically just rewarding players for playing their best cards. Um, you know, and, and, you know, things like Victarion, who I believe is in the uh, Lannister box, right? Is like one of the few exceptions of this in Balon. The small Vic, right, I think is in the Lannister yeah, box. Yeah, the, the six cost, I think yeah. so. But like, other than that, literally all the other <laughs> like, like character, big characters worth playing in Greyjoy are non loyal, are loyal, right? Um, and that's just like that's not interesting, right? It's just like either pure upside or the downside is not high enough for it to be be uh, you know a real deck building cost and like Barra really suffers the most for this because I think in all the other factions, Greyjoy, Stark, Lannister, it's not really present in Night's Watch. This is something that kind of like Night's Watch kind of flows under the, the radar with a lot of this stuff. If I remember correctly, I guess yeah. the, the, no, they, there's yeah, nothing. Like Korn, no, Corn cares about Unique's not loyal. Yeah. Uh, like yeah. like I, Night's Watch is worth talking about this is a really important cycle for Night's Watch. So that's something that's worth um, talking about, I guess on its own, but um, yeah. So well, like, 
more proactive factions with this theme with this theme present. Excuse me. Um, it works, but like Barra, which these cards, you know, like King Stannis just never ended up getting there consistently enough. And then there's this Sir Davos, which, you know, like I'm going to read this card because I don't know if it's ever seen competitive play ever. Like people joke I about mean, competitive I, Mel, but I think people tried him when he first came out. I, I definitely remembered X trying to, to use him and Cortirian for a while since they're, you know, he's kind of the, uh, the, bad xerox copy version like really bad right paper jam dipper if you're a gravity falls fan (laughs) i guess he has the advantage of having the smuggler trait right the other one doesn't have the smuggler trait the corset one i don't believe oh man Um, maybe not knight lord smuggler he's a six for four by the way uh loyal and he is stealth and reaction. When Sir Davos Seaworth bypasses a non-loyal character using stealth, either draw one card or gain one gold. This, this, you know, theoretically, this would punish your like could punish a Lannister player, right? Because so many of their good cards, uh, particularly in this period of time, were non-loyal, right? The Mountain Tyrion, who you mentioned, Jamie. Um, there's, I know I'm missing another big one that saw a lot of play at that time. Um, and those are all useful characters. I mean, you can't bypass Tyrion with stealth because he has stealth, but right. you bypass Jamie, you know, you can bypass the mountain, right? And you, you know, you think theoretically this would punish a faction like Lannister that rely relied primarily on its non-loyal cards. Uh but of course that's just not how it ended up, right? Or even Martel at this point, right? Martel had some really powerful non-loyal cards like Ariane, mm-hmm. right? Um, but it just didn't it ended up just being garbage. Like this card is legitimately garbage. And the same with the Stannis, who he, he was a better and did see more competitive play, primarily because of the first part of his text box during power challenges, each participating non-king character gets minus one strength, compared to its reaction, which I saw people just forget exists in tournaments. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, and you know, they're just like primarily like mathing out how. Stannis's, you know, burn uh, ability works, and we're like, oh yeah, I, that character doesn't stand. Is that character loyal? Is that character non-loyal? Like the fact that there's just so many times when this card enters play, people are like, oh, what's a lo- where are the loyal? What cards do you have that aren't loyal? Right? Just shows you that this theme never really landed, and the fact that they never go back to it is also an- another example, I think, of just it is a big failure. Yeah, I I mean, I guess there there's who there's multiple pieces uh to tackle here. The the shortest one maybe is especially when you're looking at stuff like Davos and and Stannis and the like it it's obvious still even at this point in the second cycle um that we were trying to find the balance point uh of strength for these higher cost characters. Um and these ones definitely came in below the necessary mark. Um, and there's just, especially as the card pool grows, there's just never any way to go back and, and um, offset that and, and make them into a playable version. Um, as far as the, the loyalty theme kind of being largely abandoned from here on out, um, 
you know, you can see some some cards mixed in here that care more about unique versus non-unique, and that continues and grows from from here. And I, I think that was just kind of uh, organic or uh, possibly even just a conscious uh, decision on design's part that that type of um, limiting factor, I guess, or that that type of targeting criteria, there we go, um, felt much more organic to second edition or, well, probably just to Thrones in general. It was yeah, it's a Thrones in, in, in general. first edition, um, but it also played up a, a lot of the things that they said they wanted to focus more on in second ed, right? And making those those characters, those named people more fun to play and, and just a little bit stickier on the board and that sort of thing. So um, this, I think, is, is probably going to be the last time we see them in kind of co-equal spots, and that will rapidly take over the targeting yeah. restrictions. Yeah, absolutely. I do think that that's really cool design space, um, and it's one I'm always happy to see explored because I think that there's really interesting tension between unique and like the uniqueness mechanic and the dead pile for it having some flaws that I think we've talked about, um, on this show, I think is one of the more interesting things about Thrones and it sets it apart from other similar, um, you know, character battle card games, um, uh, and to play around with that, right. Where, you know, in first edition, um, uniqueness was largely a downside, um, much closer, I guess you could say, to like magic and the legend rule making, you know, legendary creatures a little bit and legendary lands a little worse than a regular one. Um, while in second edition, with the way saves were changed, unique characters become better. Um, and I actually think is good in the sense that it's more there's more tension between the non uniques and the unique characters in your card pool. There's actually interesting deck building decisions. Um, you know, as much as our, our former colleague Scott will go on about saves, and we talked endlessly in the first episode about the changes to saves, I do think there's a lot of interesting tension there, and I do like when they explore that. And it really does begin here with, you know, the the highlight card of it being, as you mentioned earlier, core and half-hand. Um, yeah, if you've ever played Corrin today against a Targaryen player, you'll definitely see <laughs> that there is legitimately a downside to um, Corrin's ability. Uh, uh, there is. Where you're like, oh man, I won this sweet military challenge, but I li- cannot kill any of your cards because they're all unique. Um, you know, it, is, uh, it's really interesting. And like actually, you know, playing around an effect like Corrin Halfhand... Um, is something you, you can do. And there's actually interesting deck building tension. I wish there was actually more of it that I think, you know, punished unique characters um, and, you know, punished non-unique characters and they could fall in and out of the meta. And you definitely saw that with probably one of the more unpopular cards in the bin pack slash things I do for love, which is um, you murdered her children, I think is actually, yeah. it's actually a card. I actually, you know, I, I think I'm on the record in the review episode Glazer and I did about it um, for um, it's either on the white book YouTube or on beyond the white book. Uh, like, I think it's actually a good card to have in the card pool. Uh, I know it's a very unpopular hot take opinion, but uh, I think it's a really useful effect 
because it punishes people for relying so much on their Eurons, their Balons, their uh, Dannys, their Renlies, whatever um, that you that you need. Um, in the same way that Corrin can punish non-uniques, um, and as we'll talk about later, Valor punishes strategies that rely primarily on non-unique characters as well. Ah, uh, man, you murdered her children. I don't know if that is uh, a rabbit hole we want to go down. Uh, well, we'll get there eventually. Moment. We'll we'll get there. We'll get there. I won't. I I won't touch that one right now. <laughs> Oh boy. Uh, but you, you did mention another one, which um, is one of the individual cards I wanted to hit on. But since we've kind of sidestepped into this whole unique, non-unique uh, thing that has been kicking off more in the cycle, I think it's very reasonable to to talk Valor Margolis uh, right sure. now. Um, not only did it serve let's say uh, a a lot of first ed player fan service and this is you know looking back in the history of the game this is probably that kind of last uh chance to hook those um former first ed players that were still kind of on the fence uh before things got too unwieldy to get back in or their attention had completely dropped away from thrones this would have been let's see this pack would be starting what almost a year after the uh, yes it was out at the gen con that chris schoenthal won but not legal for it if i remember right okay I i think i think it was legal in the melee but not legal in the joust if i remember right there is um if I if I'm remembering correctly, okay. So yeah, almost exactly a year then. Yeah, give give or take a, a weekend or two, depending on when Gen Con was uh, yes. each year. Um, so I I think in some ways it it was a calculated move to uh, try to tap a little bit little bit of that potential customer base and or keep some folks uh, that maybe were less certain about the second edition uh, meta and setup. Um, and honestly, I think it it was an attempt to fill a hole uh, with a much needed uh, stopgap in the Game of Thrones system. Uh, I, I won't rehash the entire thing here, but I did a, did a little series of articles for card game DB way back in the day for first ed, uh, about why I am, uh, very certain that, um, the design of the game basically wound up being balanced around the existence of wide reaching board resets like this. Um, of course wildfire was available both in the very initial release of the ccg and in the first release here of second ad the corset um but it still didn't quite get there partly uh the ability to to spread that board out wider partly um the the larger kind of the ability to go more vertical on these larger unique characters uh, combined with uh, the duplicate issues we've talked about before, like it, it was aiming at a target 
that needed to be hit. Uh, but in second ed, I think somebody had kind of moved the target a little bit to the side from where it was. Um, and while, while this has obviously had a big presence uh, and impact, it, it has not been the same impact. Yeah, I, I, that's definitely true. I mean, I think as those like people, myself included, but I mean our 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 wayward co-host Aaron Glazer, um, people thought that Valor Margulis was going to have a bigger impact initially than it did um, at the time. Um, I think it had a huge impact initially at first, but then people realized that they printed. Both the, as you mentioned earlier, the baked in initial second edition rules are much more favorable to counterplay against Valor Margulis than it ever was in first edition. Um, and, but also just in this cycle, there's a variety of different answers to it. You know, there's um, the biggest example of it, of course, being Craster uh, that is present. The first cycle had Close Call, which in many ways is, you know, the ultimate you know, is, is a really powerful answer to Valor Margulis. And there's interesting tension there, but there are multiple ways to play yeah. around it. Ghost of Heron Hall. And Ghost of Heron Hall's in the cycle. Well. Yep. Mm-hmm. That, that's a big, that's a big one. Like there were so many more, like in many ways, Nate whacked you over the head, I guess you could say as much as possible with, there are answers to Valor Margulis. Um, on a structural level in the form of dupes being stronger and uncancelable to there being things that planted in the first cycle, you know, iron mines. Again, that's another example of the things that we talked about here and stuff within this cycle itself, ghost of Heron hall, craster um, at the same time. Well, also economy was a lot worse um, as well. Also true. So, so the two zero 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 five, was a much bigger hit when Valor Margulis first came out. Um, and it was and, very controversial. And, oh, go ahead, Will. Oh, well, um, just kind of also with that, we had talked in the corset stuff about new mechanics and tweaks and, of course, reserve. Yep. And I think along with that low gold value, um, it's also worth including that, let's say, slightly below average reserve value. Right. And not even just both slightly below average. I think the play patterns Valor Margulis encourages, right? Particularly encouraged in first edition, right? Was to whoever could successfully, this is very flattening things out, obviously, but whoever could bait their opponent into overextending the point where you could Valor first, generally won games in first edition, right? Is that fair, Will? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's a lot harder in second edition because of that five reserve, right? where you can't just hoard resources in your hand and valor and then be able to, because you're not going to, because at two zero zero zero, you're not really going to be able to play very many cards unless you've really built up your economy. And at first, like the economy is re- pretty hard to build up in second edition, but also even if you don't play anything on your valor turn, you're not going to have as many resources going into the, say you flip into an economy plot turn two. So, or the turn after Valor Margulis. So in many ways, if your opponent, you can kill nine of your opponent's characters, but they save one, you know, Valor can end up being bad for you. Like, yeah. uh, there's a lot of games like that that I played early when this card was released. That was very much like, it seemed like, my the first edition logic, this would have been a great Valor. You know, I killed 
six or seven cards of theirs. And, you know, but I wasn't able to play a lot. I had to discard a card to reserve. They were able, they played an economy plot on my Valor turn, played two or three things, had claim, hit me. And, you know, I'm actually on the back foot, even though I Valored and, and, and they, um, that said though, oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say uh, the as far as the this goes and kind of the drawbacks to Valor, I think this is the plot, like a, a lot of our earlier discussion about reserve, of course, um, said like, it, it's a good idea. We can kind of see how they get there, but it wasn't quite as impactful as maybe we thought it would be. And I, But I do feel like Valor Margolis is a plot, maybe the first plot that really made that reserve relevant, um, partly because of the income issue, uh, men, made it harder to play stuff out, harder to hold till the next turn. So uh, unlike a lot of plots where there is some kind of drawback, no reserve, or you give your opponent some, or, or sorry, uh, no initiative, I meant to say, or no claim, or you give your opponent some gold or you, whatever sort of drawbacks there might be, they are generally only on a that turn basis. But in a lot of ways, the, the drawbacks to the, the additional drawbacks on this Valor Mergolis actually wind up impacting you for two turns, the yes. turn you play and the next turn, um, which, which really sets that bar a lot higher. Plus being compounded that... Um, with the expanded resource curve, but v- Valor keeping the same two gold uh, in first edition, like you mentioned in in that kind of scenario where they kept the one character or whatever, the like differential you were back on like gold investment mm-hmm. was much lower and much easier to overcome. Their plot only probably only had four gold, so maybe you're down two. Like you can kind of play it into that and only be we're saying you know rough numbers only be it like 75 percent of their hundred or whatever right um but because this spread has stretched out so much further if they keep the one character uh plus now whatever plot they revealed might have five or six gold or something to year two now maybe you're setting it like 50% of their 100% efficiency and that that's the further that spread gets out the harder it is to be effective with with this plot that is yeah absolutely and i one of the but i actually want to double back a little bit before we move on and actually say that i think um the game long term though i think actually valamar gulis i mean valamar gulis is the most important card in this pack or the set like it is easily still the most influential card um, because I think it's what it does to second edition is easily less important than what it did in first edition. But I think subtly it has had a, a much more subtle effect on the game than um, than could be initially the initial impressions. I because I, I definitely th- remember um, on this show. I think I was on the show full time by the time the cycle cycle two came out. Um, I think so. Yeah. And, uh, you know, talking with Aaron, you know, there was a lot of hate about where Valor ended up, but I think actually over time it's shown that it remains an extremely powerful plot. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that as the economy curve improves, starting in the next cycle, cycle three, 
um, you really start seeing the power of Valor, even with all the drawbacks we've talked about. The fact that we are at the point now that decks can be built around Valor Margulis in a way that um, is really powerful. And I think actually aggressive Valors are much more of a feature in second edition than they ever were in first edition. Now that's not saying that there wasn't aggressive Valors in first edition. There definitely were. Greyjoy um, was known for them. Greyjoy was one. I, I mean, my most, my biggest success in first edition was playing a deck that could aggressively Valor its opponent. Um, you know, but it was much less like, you know, there was like maybe three factions that could aggressively Valor, you know, four at certain points, um, you know, in, in second edition, um, and you know, it's still, it's a massively influential plot and it is, it is actually ends up being a release valve. Um, and I actually think long-term second edition Valor ended up kind of where Nate kind of wanted it to be, you know, in his public announcements and, and I think privately without spilling too much tea from the playtesting process. Although I was not involved in the playtesting process for the second cycle, um, but subsequent discussions um, that he had is, you know, he wanted Valor Margulis to be an important plot in the card pool, but not the center like it was in first edition. And I actually think it ended up comfortably there. That really, as we're sitting here at the end of the FFG era, um, Valor Margulis has mostly worked out. Um, you know, it, it has its, it's had its good times and its bad times, but it, it remains one of the most powerful plots in the card pool and definitely something that if you don't build your deck respecting it, it will punch you in the face and you will lose games because you didn't respect it. Um, and that's definitely, you know, something that is really important and it is a really useful escape valve. I mean, you can just look at Francis's world championship. Francis won the world championship because he and his teammates built a Targ Sea of Blood deck that was not only a really good Targ Sea of Blood deck, but it could aggressively Valor and it could aggressively Valor on turn one and not lose the game. Um, and that really gave him a leg up over other Targ Sea of Blood. It was the, the Mirror Crusher, like for, and it was also just a, like a lot of people just weren't expecting an aggro deck, a non Greyjoy aggro deck to Valor you on turn one. Right. Uh, so in many ways it was like, oh, I need to make sure I set up my two or three key ca characters to, you know, answer the Targsy of Blood deck. And, oh, it's great. I've got my, um, oh my God, what's his name? Clytus. I've got my, you know, whatever. I've got a big, two big military bodies that are uniques that, that are, you know, there's no way they're getting their, their Sea of Blood trigger through. Well, they just valor away those two awesome uniques and, you know, and you're screwed. You know, your whole plan was building on that tempo advantage that you will have on the first turn and maintaining the tempo game and exchanging resources with the Sea of Blood player. And they couldn't do that. That's just, again, that's just one example of many. Like, um, oh my God, Lenart, there we go. Lenart's uh, deck that he won the world championship with, his Martel Wolf deck, was built around Valor Margulis and taking advantage of it and, and making up for the drawbacks of the card with things like Dorn and things like uh, whatever the Martel uh, non-loyal economy location is. I'm, it's escaping me which one it's called. The one that gives reserve. Oh, um, yeah. Oh, crud. I love like, that location, and now I can't think of the name. But anyway, like, again, 
but there were but of course there were other you know world world championship decks that weren't really built around that like reinhardt's was not really built around using valamar ghoulis right and there were powerful successful strategies that weren't built around that they had answers for valamar ghoulis they understood what it was but it wasn't like a requirement it, the, to, to play it the way it was in first edition that you had to be a stop there we go you had to be you know, someone ballsy like derek shoemaker to not play valor in first edition like you really had to have cojones or whatever you know a term you want to use um for that to not play valor margulis you were really giving up ev for not playing valor margulis in first edition that's not the case in second edition um but that doesn't mean that the plot doesn't have long-reaching implications down to present so. no i agreed agreed it definitely as the card pool uh matured it definitely found a home yeah uh so do we want to double back we didn't really talk about the summer and winter do you want to double back and talk yeah. about summer and winter yeah um, that uh that sounds good i i'm gonna say that summer and winter is the, the theme here I think it should be clear to me. I actually think the second cycle is largely a failure. I th- it's definitely a step down from the first cycle. I think it misses much. It's sw- it misses much. It swings. Um, there's still some powerful cards in here that still see play, but I definitely think that the second cycle was a big failure. And the the, the seasonal theme is such a huge point for this. Oh yeah. Um, you know, kings of summer, kings of winter, large failures. I mean, kings of summer is just kind of like. <sighs> Fealty, you know, like, where do you want your weakness to be with your economy agenda? Do you want to be able to run as many neutral cards as you want um, and get some reserve, but you've got to, you you know, you kind of got to play these summer plots to get your economy? Or do you want to play fealty and, you know, have to have a cap on the number of of, uh, neutral cards you can run and that your economy advantage only works on loyal cards, right? Um, and there's no reserve boost, right? That's kind of like what Kings of Summer was. It was kind of like an alt fealty. Um, so it really only saw play in, you know, factions that specifically wanted that, the specific tools that Summer could get them, you know, builders being the, you know, the quintessential example of this, the Kings of Summer build um, of it. Um, but you kind of like Kings of Summer was something you kind of were almost always willing to cash in, as you'll see, you know, with Wars, um, wars to Come, when we get to wars to come, they immediately, ca- you know, I think that the best version of, of builders remains the king, the that version of it in, in the history of the deck. I mean, immediately it was like, okay, cool. We can get away with this kind of mopey economy agenda for some real good stuff. Uh, and then Kings of Winter up to recently, giant failure, like even more so than Kings of Summer. Kings of Summer was, you know, there was like this weird tension with fealty that kind of was interesting, I guess. I don't know. And then Kings of Winter just failed. Um, up to recently, the winter theme just sucked. You know, now there's these stark winter decks that are starting to come up and be important. Um, you know, you saw this, um, with the stark deck that did really well at Blackwater. I believe it won Blackwater. And then you had the stark deck that came in second at, uh, this year's, uh, Dancer Dragon? No, Feast for Crows. Um, Feast for Crows at, at, uh, Neck, both big online tournaments that happened recently. Um, so the winter theme kind of got developed eventually, um, once particularly once winter reserves plot. But for the, I mean, what, the 
what it really boils down to isn't even so much the winter theme as the rest of the econ was developed right the the real problem i think that these two agendas really exacerbate uh is the discrepancy in econ uh, and particularly how it is tied into the summer and winter traits on the plots. I mean, yes, I can track how you thematically want summer to be the time of, of plenty and everybody has money and it's great. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Right. Uh, and, and how you want winter to be a time of, of famine and everyone to not have much money. Uh, but what when you do both the uh, agendas around that idea and the plots, and there's not enough other income. So at at this point in the game, and for frankly still a while to come uh, from the second cycle on, you were beholden to those summer plots to have a reasonable amount of income. It's skewed deck construction. And meta representation so hard that the kind of struggle back and forth between the seasons that w- appears to be envisioned in these agendas doesn't materialize because the the structural mechanics of the game, the, the economy game, skews it so hard the other direction. Right. I mean, it's not even structurally that the economy cards i mean the specific decision that all but two of the good economy plots are summer plots and then when they print a card advantage plot that has the summer trait that's also going to be a huge problem right because like what 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 do you what do you get from the choice to play winter you get some mopey two claim plots you get a bunch of two claim plots but a bunch of mopey one right probably the best one is Famine, I guess, would probably be the best one on like effect as a plot, unless I'm missing one. But I think that's yeah, probably just the yeah, best. it's probably the strongest actual effect. But it's also among the weakest income for you all at the same time. Right. It, it literally takes them printing an econ plot for winter to really break it open. Right. Um. Yeah. Winter reserves. That that's what it is. Like if winter reserves had been in this cycle, um. I think thing we the, the whole I think the whole shape of how the winter theme developed would have changed. Um, you know, there's an attempt in the Stark box to print a card advantage card in winter with um, Rangers Cache, but that also never really worked out, right? It's and when you look at um, it compared to exchange of information, it's laughable, right? Oh yeah. Um, and you know, it, it's like a shitty count counting uh, counting coppers. And then exchange is just a straight upgrade over it, um, even if there are some deck building costs of playing exchange that that are, I guess we can talk about when we get to that. Because exchange is cycle like, well, four, I think. Uh, sounds about right. It's it's uh, definitely a ways from where we are. Uh, but I think Kings of Winter is a giant failure, and also again, I think one of the one of the problems, I, I, I mean, there's this continue. You saw this a little bit in the in the core set, and you saw it again a little bit of in the first cycle, which is this like attack your opponent's reserve theme 
which partially what winter does the king's winter plot yeah um the problem with it is it's such a negative play experience um that they never really want to push it and so but it's a kind of effect that only really is competitively useful if you push it um you know that's the that's the thing about discard right and you know why you frequently don't see card games push discard as like a central theme or if they do it they push it and they make it so you know it's super mopey if you want to go in all in on a on a discard deck you know card games will print like a really powerful effect like um Oh my god! What is Thrones' version of Thoughtseize um, instead of Corset? Um, Seed and Flames. There we go. Um, Seed and Flames, uh, but that targets a single card, right? And then from that point, you know, it gets mopier and mopier and mopier because it's just like, do you really want to like go into a turn where you have zero reserve without your choice? Like, does that sound fun? Like that you can't ever reserve reserve uh any resources you have to play every card every turn um i think is one of those things and the game also again also has this additional built-in ink tree claim mechanic that also means so you're always losing resources anyway right so the fact that the npe nature of an all-in discard deck being something that they never really want to push is always going to make the cards that are designed to support that theme mopey and kings of winter is a great example of, again of this mopey ass card that just doesn't work until again it they literally had to print basically a busted card to make it work yeah compared to summer kings of summer which was at least playable even before some of the bust even before trade routes (laughs) Um, but it's uh, still just the most boring conceptual idea of a plot (laughs) here you go have plus one gold i mean it's particularly boring once they print exchange right where you do like you don't have to th- consider counting coppers at all anymore, right? For a card advantage plot. Yeah. Right. Like any of the other card advantage plots, you're like, oh man, wait. So exchange of information being four gold and an additional reserve? <laughs> like, why wouldn't I play two of that card? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it just becomes, again, silly. Uh, and again, because Kings of Winter sucks so much, there's less fear that you're. Kings of Summer is going to get turned on. Right? Which was one of the more interesting right. tensions in first edition between the seasons, is you could more frequently see the season switch, although Summer didn't see a... Summer saw some play, I guess. right? Winter was more common um, in first edition towards the end, Will, right? If memory is serving me. Um, yes. Yeah. Uh, because there was like really busted start cards that, in particular that relied on Winter. But... Um, and even Greyjoy had some some yeah. solid stuff too but nobody had particularly busted summer stuff uh right you know there was some summer raven because did it let you draw cards i can't quite remember it was additional gold yeah there yeah, yeah. no there was the wasn't there a neutral sam that let you draw two cards every time you played a raven right there, there was some and, but yeah you also got gold uh while it was summer <clears throat> right so there was some advantage to to playing summer but you but it would legitimately you could see a season change right yeah. Um, in, in first edition, but there's none of that in, in second edition. Um, I think the design to make it in the plots is maybe cleaner than requiring an additional like draw deck card space. Um, you know, which was always kind of weird anyway. Like when I, when, you know, uh, I actually didn't own the packs that had the Ravens in them 
for a while in first edition when I first started playing. So I was always really confused about how you were supposed to consistently create the seasons. Um, oh, gotcha. Right. Cause there's not, I think there's only one card in the core set for first edition that actually changes the season, which is the Stark crown. Yeah. There might oh, be a yeah. Targaryen card that makes it summer. I can't remember. I forgot the crown does that. Yeah. As long as there's not a Raven, right? Yeah. yeah. Like again, further reason why the first edition core set is terrible. Uh, yeah. It's very poorly designed. Um, but like, I think I understand getting away from that mechanic in second edition and putting it on plots is kind of interesting, but that ended up just not working out as, you know, having anywhere like interesting interplay. Uh, even today where now winter's more powerful, it's still not a huge thing. Although the one plot here, the one winter plot that does sometimes get screwed up in this counterplay and can be interesting and can change the outcome of games is winter festival. Um, this might be the only really successful version of that effect, where it's like if you flip a summer plot on a key turn where you know your opponent might um, flip Winter Festival, that that is really interesting counterplay, um, particularly against rush decks, right? And Glazer and I actually commented on a match at Blackwater that was settled on the fact that the player decided to not flip their summer plot that they had on their opponents really telegraphed winter festival turn um, and allowed them to get to 14 power at, by the end of that turn and then easily into, into their 15th. Yeah. It, the game probably could have done with more effects at that type of, of level that where the individual plots would turn on or off uh, mm-hmm. depending on what your opponent did because I'm trying to remember off the top of my head, there, there's Winter Festival. Then there's uh, what's the one that discards a power from everyone that doesn't have a discards one power from one card. The long winter by everyone that doesn't have a summer, which is such a tiny effect to be completely negligible. Yes, yeah, so it's uh, also four two close- two, so it's like four. So it's yeah. not even like it's like you know four six two four or something, right? And then close call, you still get the character move, but you don't draw a card if your opponent played a winter, right? Mm-hmm. And those are the, those are the only three I'm I can recall off the top of my head now um, that have that type of inter intra plot uh, interplay. Mm-hmm. So, oh, failure for summer and winter. Yeah, it's a big failure. Um, I guess that brings us to talk about the economy cards, which maybe we could do a little bit more quickly. Um, Looking through each faction, all of them got one. Um, Mostly unique locations, right? But not... Yeah, except for Lannister gets the event, right? Levies? No, brothel, brothel, brothel. No, you can kneel and eat. You never oh, stop playing. But yeah, yeah the brothel. Forgot yeah. that exists. Um, then... Stark got two. Um, uh, Beggar King. Beggar King actually doubles, right? As both the economy card and their king card. Uh, oh, yeah. Actually, I think you uh, you are right. I hadn't quite caught that. And then does actually weirdly does 
is does Tyrell not get Tyrell one? the only one that doesn't get one? I think weird, but maybe the uh, they get maybe the Arbor and they, one. Yeah, exactly. Could coast off of that. Yeah, oh. it, yeah. They're the only one that didn't get an economy card. Um, so there's seven seven factions plus. Is there or, well. Or do you count encampment since it can put characters into play for free? I guess that's true. Uh, oh, bit of bridge encampment, uh, banter bridge. Uh, I have such, yeah. I have such I, soft. That's probably it. I have a such. Yeah, that, that's fair. Then that's like, so. It's all eight factions, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, bit of bit of bridge. Um. <laughs> anyway, uh, nostalgic. Yep. I I think that this. Mostly doesn't work. Uh, the you know I think probably two thirds of them don't see very much play. You know, oh my god, how many fights did you know I have with my teammates about um, Bear Island, where you know I was initially bullish on Bear Island and many other people were bearish, and then you know it kind of flipped where um, Jonathan Andrews. Dark Nage was always about one X Bear Island. Why isn't there one X Bear Island in this deck? Uh, you know, and it just kind of never really got there. Um, White Tree for a long time didn't see anything. Tower of the Sun, you know, the only one of these that got restricted, yeah. but primarily <laughs> kind of got restricted to nuke. Um, yeah, not necessarily nuke, at all. Yeah, to nuke combo, and of course the brothel never saw any play. King Baylor's Solar. I don't know. Like, I mean, it saw a teensy bit of play as a one X. I seem to recall, right? Same it was, with the Stone Drum, cost and not limited times. Yeah, well, it's not limited economy, right? That's that's also the important thing. I was saying, it's right. like what separates it from the Arbor is the Arbor is limited, right? right. Um, this is all non non limited economy, but so much of it is either a unique or b super contingent. Um, but I would say as a way of smoothing out the economy differential between factions is a giant disaster. Um, and weirdly, you know, starts marking Targaryen as being the second best faction with economy. You know, we're going to we're going to see pretty rapidly, you know, Lannister drop to the third place and to be replaced by Targaryen having the, the second best economy excuse me in the in the in the game once we get to the third cycle and we start seeing the economy cards um you know the the first real attempt to push new economy excuse me design space into the game which is going to be infinitely more successful than what happens in the second cycle um and it's going to really actually fundamentally change the way second edition is played um but that but here it fails and i think it doesn't even fail in interesting ways like a lot of these cards are just really dull um, yeah and yeah and there's actually a lot of that in this cycle there's like a lot of cards that are just really dull um and that, that just miss it's yeah i mean the poster child for that i think is the brothel right that it never saw any play because the the type of ask here you know w- would you pay three to get one is only in marshalling too Only in marshalling, right? Yeah, so not even a surprise event or ambush or something. Yeah. 
and yeah, that's that's just kind of the the biggest example of the effort just not being worth the payoff on yeah. a lot of these. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, other than uh, the income uh, theme, there is a broader topic that I wanted to to hit on. Uh, it that relates back to some earlier stuff um, that we were discussing that admittedly, I probably should have brought this up then, but I feel like this is a cycle that really hits home to me uh, how kind of mismatched night's watch place is in the game. Uh, Just as far as it, it's very, existence uh at all as a playable primary faction uh where it just really doesn't hook into any of these themes that we've talked about except uh wait a minute do any wait do any of these reference summer or winter i thought something did but now i'm double checking and actually uh, maybe not (laughs) Um, let's see. Yeah, none, none of them, none of them do, uh, tie into any of these themes at all. Not even winter. Like I was thinking off the top of my head. Um, and they, they already like, it's, it's just a weird place from a Nedley perspective for like the loyal stuff where Night's Watch has kind of a weird place there when you want to make Kings a huge part of things. You obviously have trouble with Martell, but you really have trouble with Night's Watch who are again, sworn not to participate in the politics of the realm. Um, You can look forward to the released later released content and at least argue that, Hey, Martell has, you know, schemes going, they are going to attempt to crown a queen, one queen or another, and you you can hook on to, to that somehow uh, and find, find a home for them that interprets that. But this just really, really cements for me that Night's Watch just doesn't fit. Yeah, I mean, Night's Watch, I think, is definitely one of the big winners here. Um and actually, some of the most interesting Night's Watch cards are in this cycle. Um, I mean, the most infamous ones, right? The, I think we've... How much have we talked about Haunted Forest before we even got to where it print? It, oh. <laughs> it was printed, Will, in this cycle? A few. Like, a few. But there's a lot of, like, really interesting, powerful... A lot of the power in Night's Watch is located here. Um, and maybe that's why maybe all of this is so powerful because they don't connect to any of the stated themes for this cycle at all. Correct. Well, cause, because I think Night's Watch was just the weakest faction going into the cycle. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, all the themes were the least developed. They required the most um, support. Um, and they also like how much, like, Night's Watch is super weird because it's really hard to frequently fit their themes in. Like, like fit Night's Watch's specific themes into the broader themes. Like, there's no king in Night's Watch, right? 
right. the decision to make wildlings a neutral theme also also suffers, right? Because so there's no nice watch mace or not mace, mance, excuse me. Mance. Yeah. Mance um here. Right? Which there could have been. Um there, you know, there could have been like you could have made wildlings rather than being a neutral theme, a night watch theme, and then you could have had him. Um instead you just basically see support for internal night's watch themes that I think are just like there's some just really like some of the funnest and most powerful Night's Watch cards are here, right? Like Dragonglass Dagger, Ari, White Tree are all really, really fun Night's Watch cards. Um, and then, of course, you have the ridiculously powerful Night's Watch cards like Craster, Ed, Corrin, Shadow Tower Mason, Craven, and Haunted Forest. Oh, and Fist of the First Men also falls under fun cards, right? Um so just I, I actually think this might be the only faction that's almost all bangers. All of the Night's Watch yeah. cards in this set are playable. If I guess the worst is the fact that the worst is Fist of the First Men, which is a card that's like craving for like it still fits that role of that shagger role, right? It's like demanding that players build around it. Mm-hmm. Um and the Night Gathers, of course, was also bad for a long time. Until it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, right. Right. Uh, so I think that, you know, and then the, the next faction, the next best faction is, is Tyrell, which ha- misses a lot more, right? It, it's got, um, there King is Renly's my claim, host. King Renly's host, um, author of, author of a peach kind of never where he went anywhere, but people like I it. Mean, Caswell's Keep never wound up going anywhere. Yeah, but, but Caswell's Keep and Offer of the Peach are other cards kind of like Scream. This card's kind of bad, but still, but there's some value in building around it and some fun to be had building around it. And then, of course, there's the straight up, probably the most busted seven-cost character in the game. And the one that's kind of like avoided restriction in the form of Renly. And the fact that this is the card that continues to carry Tyrell to present. Um, you know, Tyrell is, I still think, even with the pod system, remains the most restricted faction. If I, Ooh, remember right. I had not stopped to actually count that up. I should have. Um, and the fact that it's still playable on the back of Renly. Like Renly really does. This This is the pack that kicked Night's Watch and, and Tyrell into the serious meta. Um, you know, and like they don't ever really leave going forward. Um, and a lot of that has to do with just the power of, of it in the pack in this pack for these two factions. Uh, but other factions get complete garbage. Uh, with Baratheon being one that has a lot of really bad cards, uh, like Visited by Shadows, White Raven, Ritual of Relore, Stone Drum. These are all, I mean, the, uh, oh, Valer, the Valerian. Oh, my God. Uh, and then Greyjoy also has a lot of really bad cards. Uh, it has some good ones, don't get me wrong, but it also has a lot of really bad cards. Uh, it just, again, continues to show that I think. Blessing with Saul? <laughs> no, I'm definitely not playing. I mean, it has our preview card that you and I had with, um, I don't think he works at oh. FFG anymore. He was the like the studio head, 
um, Michael. Oh, Michael Hurley. Yeah. We had him and Balon, right? Uh, as our two spoiler cards that we had, we had him on. It was you, me, and Schoenthal, I think, actually, that were interviewing him, if I remember, if memory serves. Wow. Man, no, I've I've completely forgotten now. Uh, well, I have just very distinct memories of it because I was trying to be quiet. I was in Al's apartment and recording it at like, you know, 10 o'clock at night, uh, 11 o'clock at night and trying to be quiet, which is very difficult for me. And she had a, like a studio apartment. So uh, it was very, it was very, yeah, it's a very memorable experience for me, but I definitely remember ours is the old way. And because we had Michael on and it was a preview card, we were like trying to talk about it being you know, uses, but this yeah. card, of course, truly is one of the worst cards in the card. Pack. That, that, that does sound familiar. The trying to sound okay while he was on the show and then tearing it apart in the pack review. Yeah. Um, you know, we got Balon, a legitimately interesting card, um, you know, but yeah, I would just say overall that I think that this pack it has a lot of individually powerful cards and individually influential cards, but when you view it as a whole and particularly on a theme level, it's a failure. Yeah. I've, I've got to say, looking at this cycle as a whole, this is, this is where design really starts to, to stumble uh, that, that some of the cracks we were looking at in the game design um, get, exacerbated by some of these effects um and and that just the overall roadmap of of where some new directions are going to go just don't stack up yeah and i mean the next product um is the end of the nate french era of second edition and and i think we should save we should save the discussion for this. Um, but I think it's important that I think that the original design principles of second edition hold through this into the Lannister box. And this, um, you continue, I think you see in this pack taken as a whole, the weaknesses of some of that initial de- like design philosophy. Yeah. Um, it's like a lot of the card, like so there's so many cards here I mean, Valimar Goulis is one example, but it's one that I think, you know, we've talked about it to death. So, but, you know, in the end it worked out, but there's a lot of like hangover from first edition cards. So cards that are brought back from first edition, but are brought back as like really weak shadows of themselves. Oh, Um, I see what you did there. The biggest one being actually not that. Visited by shadows. Visited by by shadows, shadows, isn't it? Is actually dissension. Which was oh. one of the defining cards of first edition, yeah. right? Like that card saw so much play. Um, really powerful, really powerful answer card. Really powerful, like escape valve in in the meta. It could really punish your opponent, right? If they did that, like all refugee setup, right? You could just pop, you could blow them out on the first turn, right? They could just not have a board, right? Because it didn't discard every. Refugee, if I remember right. Um, Maybe. Man, it's been a while. (laughs) The fact that core descent, the dissension here, cost two gold and only hit allies and didn't hit mercenaries. That's the thing that really hurts this card. Um, If it had hit allies and mercenaries, 
And what's so weird, of course, is that the decision by design to not use this card as an escape valve, right? Like there's some hints in the core set that, you know, ally would legitimately be a, a drawback attachment or a, a drawback trait, a balancing trait, and dissension could act as an escape valve like it did in first edition. Where you it could- even carries through here, I think, when you've got like Jacken and Pyromancers and such. Yeah, and there's also there's also bad, you know, the wrong heirs Oakheart, right? The bad version of the the first edition version. Uh, yeah, first edition version of it. Um, like there's some attempt of it here, but it's such a weak, mealy mouth version of that effect. Where if they had actually pushed the effect to level first edition um, as an answer and escape valve, it actually would have ended up being better for the game. Like imagine dissension if it said choose an ally or mercenary character. Mm-hmm. Um, even without mercenary contract, there's a lot of really powerful mercenaries that could be could be could hint if it could be ally, mercenary, and companion. Even um, ooh, that would have been a nice update for but, second ed uh, since that because companion trend was like slapped on so many different weird things, just like ally was in in, uh, in first edition. Um, oh yeah, it it kind of became the new ally and second ed like there's really not as many allies as kind of the core set up through this kind of once set me up to leaves, let's be honest once nate leaves ally yeah. disappeared right it's just not a it's not a trait that danny's interested in supporting and thus dissension becomes you know proxy paper proxy cardboard um oh hilarious the the key mercenary that i was thinking of I had actually forgotten. Dario is also a companion. <laughs> there we go. Um, well, he's definitely a companion to Danny in the books. Um, and true. Dissension, yeah, and like Dissension is a great example of this. Northern Refugee is another example of just again these like bringing cards into Second Edition, but then being so like so afraid of their power level in First Edition that they just get nerfed into the ground. Like, and you can definitely see we're still at a point in playtesting where Nate would be like, let's bring dissension back. And playtester would be like, this card was super powerful in first edition, so we cannot let it be as powerful as it was. Yeah. In second edition. Um and that is just like such a such a burden that is on so many of these so many cards in here. Uh that Unless you are a champ card, you it's really hard to overcome that. And it's a huge – it was a problem in the first cycle, and it's even more of a problem in in the um, in this cycle. But there are, of course we'll, – we'll be honest – Venomous Blade yeah, did end that, up working out. That, that came out with a new, uh, different, but still evocative version. And maybe, maybe that's part of the – what it does well is mm-hmm. it – steps the furthest away maybe uh, of some of these ccg and first ed nods um yeah i mean it still still kills a two strength character but the the rest of everything changes the most i Mm. think compared to things like valor or dissension it's actually the best designed it's one of the best designed 1.0 into 2.0 updates right it keeps Mm. the spirit of the card which is keeping cheap characters in check in a reusable way that can also be a surprise but it does it in a way that plays with the mechanical space of second edition right rather than having the like weird i don't even remember in first edition what returned 
into shadows. Um, um, I think it was just after you lost a challenge, maybe. but it may have been as defender. Uh, I, I don't remember, but like, you know, this again, of course, plays with the fact that Venomous Blade is non-terminal. Um, and the fact See. that it can be both a marshalling phase action and a challenges action yeah. is really powerful. In first ed, it was just uh, after you lost a challenge. Yeah. Any challenge. So this is like a nerf, but it's an interesting nerf, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's always this like tension between, you know, oh, I want to put this on Arian and return Arian, reuse it again. But also, you know, the strength bump could be useful. Yeah, the secondary utility of that strength bump, I think, it's so subtle, but I don't want to, like, knock that as as an offset to making this card actually work, because it just, it has more paths to be active in the game. Right. You know, and it, it, it sits there as, like, if, if all of the updates to first edition cards into second edition were Venomous Blade second edition would be a lot better, particularly these early sets. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah. Like compare Venomous Blade to what, to Dissension. I think there's, there's got, there's another iconic card here. Um, What else? I mean, King of Salt and Rock was definitely something in first ed, but I sure wouldn't have called it. Pike. Pike, but, I, but uh, it was I mean, no, literally the same thing. I I believe. Uh, I guess Northern Refugee could. I mean, the refugees were super iconic to yeah. to first edition. So maybe that could be another one. But it's just up there with Dissension. Ocart, um, Ocart was Ocart is up, maybe yeah. one of the other ones you were thinking of. Is much and more this one, or no, that's the first cycle, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, House of the Undying. That might be. Oh, the House one. of the Undying. There we go. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's another massively iconic. I mean, it's particularly iconic to two champs and chumps slash white book, right? Right. right. You've got what? Greg got Mad King off of the power of House of the Undying, right? Or whatever it was. What was it in first edition called? It was. Um, oh, it was one of the hills. Aegon's uh, Hill? No, no. Aegon was the three cost. Look at their hand. Renaeus Hill, or no? Renaeus was the one cost. There you go. Visenya's, I think. Yeah, I think. Right, that guy, Greg, um, Mad King, right? Uh, Nope, nope. Um, Mad King was um, actually Bruno. Oh, it was Bruno. So we've got Bruno. So did Greg? Greg also Greg, played the character. Greg, the uh, the last or next to last um, first Ed Worlds. Um, oh no! And now I'm looking at the card. No, Visenya's was the one cost. Renaris is the four. Or oh. Rainies. There we go. Rainies. Anyway, um, no, Night uh, Saw Hollow Hill two 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 at the time was out. He was using that agenda uh, with the character light deck. All right. Um, Actually, I, I do think it was the last first Ed Worlds, if I remember right. And uh, he just barely, uh, the deck kind of crapped out on him. He didn't draw what he needed in, I think it was the semifinals game. This was but, uh, Sam's Worlds? Or not, or Jak- it wasn't Jakob's Worlds. Because that, 
right? Because I was there and Greg was not, I believe. Okay, never mind. Must have been the year before then. Right, was the one Sam won, right? Yeah. Yeah. Not not the one that, that Jakob won, where he, where he played Seth in the finals. Because that was Kyle's big shot, right? That was when Stark yeah. wings, Stark words. You're right, you're right. Almost got it. It was the it was the year before that one. Right. It was the year that I followed Worlds through coverage because I had just gotten into the game and my like gl- you know people like I knew like Glazer and you know nobody like yeah. Dave, Dave Stroms and Dan Struhall all made deep runs. Uh, Lauren Fitch, all people I knew that yeah. all made deep runs. That was um, that. That was the 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 year all of us down here should have just run that deck, but our damn Midwestern independent streak wouldn't wouldn't let us all run it even though we'd all been testing it down here i'm i'm still to this day very certain if there had been four or five of us all actually running that deck oh, yeah. one of us would have had that championship i mean almost certainly although didn't the dc lannister deck have an okay matchup against that deck if i remember right the mm-hmm. the rivers deck of, i mean we are literally putting to sleep if you are yeah, if you are a well, edition player and you're listening right now, uh, I'm sorry. If you're driving, I'm sorry. This is you know, please don't sue us when you crash into someone because you fell asleep <laughs> from the super inside baseball of first edition. But I think if I remember correctly, it had an R8 matchup because uh, you could just draw so many cards from the rivers. Yeah, yeah. It it. Gosh, the the exact back and forth of that is escapes me now. But it it probably in that type of match really. Uh, came down to power differentials, mm. um, and and if the Lannister player was able to just stick enough unopposed challenges to to be above when time was called, that's fair. Now that would be my guess, um, but my my memory is very fallible at this point. Yeah, I know. Uh, well, we should probably, I guess, move since we're talking about first edition. We should probably just uh, wrap up. Uh, I guess our discussion, right? I think we've hit all the key points yeah, about about so. this pack. I think it's the weakest product so far released in um, in second edition. Do you remember, like, I think people were also pretty disappointed with this cycle at the time, if memory serves. Um, I, yeah, I think so. I, there was just a lot of awkwardness. Of course, the, I definitely remember there was a lot of up in arms stuff about Valor and of course the the first ed hangers on uh, were cheering its return. And I remember a very vocal contingent of, of second ed only players who were very against it. Um, And then, then it kind of like flipped where there was this whole, uh, you know, death march about how valor was terrible in second edition like aaron who like aaron glazer is the biggest example of this right so excited before valor came out you know he became a meme in the facebook groups of valor's coming valor's coming it's going to save this game valor's coming and then when valor came out oh my god it's not good enough valor's terrible Blah, blah 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 um and then second edition players were like valor's gonna ruin the game then it came out and they're like, Valor, whatever. Valor doesn't matter, right? It's kind of what I remember the discourse being primarily. Um, yeah. Yeah, that that's the, the biggest one that I can recall out of uh, this cycle. Um, but 
just a lot of weirdness um, where folks were trying to defend and, and push cards that like just didn't really quite yet have a, a home or didn't didn't really quite work like ours is the old way i do remember people trying to push that at first and weird midwesterners yeah almost certainly almost Uh, certainly yeah thinking about this this era if i if i remember right because you got to think about the lanny box as well i mean reigns really does shake this whole situation up um it's you know i think you start seeing you know, the beginning of the, this is sort of the uh, beginning of the end of the Joe Miranda style thrones where it's all about the tempo, right? Um, of the, the, the initial, say, first year and a half. Because I think Valor was not legal for the worlds that Joe won, but it was out maybe? I think I cannot, I cannot, because when did this come out? Um, I'm not certain now. Let me click through. This came out in. Valor would have been the last card in the second pack, I think. Uh, where's the day? Uh, oh, well, it's going to say next week, so I should click the story. <laughs> it, you know, July 2016 is when the first pack came out. So, yeah. So I so the first pack came out in July 2016. Valor is in which pack? Uh, it's card 80. So wouldn't that be? It's in theirs. Oh, no, no. Yeah, there's I'm. Name uh, came out. I'm counting 40 cards in a pack. In November 22nd, 2016. So it was not out for Joe's World. Yeah. So I think the tempo is King style worlds. Uh, or way of playing first edition, uh, which kind of dominated the first year and a half of the game, is really begins to sort of end in the second cycle. And some of that does have to do with Valor. Um, and we move into the Lanny Dragon Age, which to me is more the aggro is King Age, mm-hmm. um, which will then dominate the the 2016 into 27 before we move into combo and passive power is king. My favorite time in uh, in Thrones, uh, in second edition Thrones. But uh, so I think the interesting thing, of course, is the second cycle begins that transition, not immediately, but it's a slow, slow transition that starts here and moves into the, the aggro action advantage, not even tempo, but action advantage of Lanny, the Lanny dragon era um, really kicks off right after, right after this cycle. In, once we see the release of rains and then we get the uh, economy take off. And, uh, and then of course we get cards like Plaza of pride uh, yeah. in the, in the night's watch box, which well, we will we'll get to eventually. We get to to get into some of that uh, the next time we we do one of these because it'll be the Lanny box, right? It will, yeah, yeah. Though, uh, slight heads up to our listeners: uh, Roy is going to be off for a little bit while he settles into a new job and new place and all. 
So well, uh, a new old place. So a new old place. <laughs> uh, yeah, definitely. So we're we'll we'll still have some kind of content coming out, but we're probably going to table this series for a few weeks uh, while Roy focuses on real life. Absolutely. Uh, I'm going to miss doing the white book on a regular basis uh, for a little bit, uh, but I will definitely be back. I know some people will be quite excited to hear that they don't have to listen to my ramblings. Uh, <laughs> and then other people, if those who do enjoy this little like design stuff that Will and I have been working on, uh, we will be back. This is a project I think you and I are both pretty pretty passionate about getting getting finished and yeah. And talking about this kind of like retrospective, particularly as we are waiting for our good friends in the conclave to be able to hammer home uh, new cards, which I hope should be pretty clear. I hope now that this is what the fifth episode we've done, because we did two, two on this core set first cycle. Yeah, this would be the fifth. Yeah. Like design cards is hard. Oh, yeah. uh, and, you know, we, we are um, backseat driving here. Um, and I, you know, I hope, I mean, and we're being pretty harsh. Um, I'll be equally harsh once, you know, I'll be honest, um, starting with the next cycle, we're in an era in which I was involved in the playtesting. In fact, probably the most heavily I was involved in playtesting will be the next three or four products that come out, probably from the Lannister box to the Martell box is kind of when myself and Aaron Glazer and, and, and some other f- friends of ours, we were most heavily play testing the game. Conveniently, I, I, that's the era I like the most. Oh, only my cards on the table. Um, but, <laughs> um, you know, so, but I think it's really hard and it should be really clear. I hope to folks that what the conclave is doing is really hard. And the fact that, you know, we're sitting here six months ish at not even maybe, Three, three to six months after the Conclave form that they still don't have new cards um, is not surprising. And, you know, yeah. particularly when they're not being paid, right? It was Cards getting designed was slow when there was two, one to three people involved who were literally, it was their job to design cards. They were drawing a living designing these cards. Um, and now we, we have people who aren't doing that who are supposed to be designing cards. So I I hope it should be clear listening to these episodes that people should um, should be patient and understanding about the delays. Or yeah, I agree. I mean, even in a more normal world, right? Our the next closest analog that I think a lot of our listener base might be familiar with is the uh, what Project Nisei for for Netrunner and. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was at least six months before they had new cards out. Right. And mm-hmm. the world has not been normal. So yeah. I, I can't blame folks for being a little, little distracted with real life um, on top of all of the direct effort involved in getting that stuff out. Yeah. So yeah. there we go. I guess we're not really ending on the danger zone this well, time just well you know talking about the conclave laying my you know laying my cards on the table about being a play tester that all is just the danger zone right there well uh, i guess it is that sure closes this chapter of the white book 